Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in the last passage of verse 9 through 21. Um, A while back, I taught a message about being more than a fan of Jesus. Talk about me and a fan, and I opened it up by saying I'm not a fan of Jesus and I'm not a fan of marriage. And and talking about how what Jesus is looking for is more than fans. He's looking for fully committed followers. And that a fan was just an enthusiastic admirer. Someone who was close enough to Jesus to get the benefits, but not so close that it required sacrifice. They were close enough to get the benefits, but not so close to Jesus that it would require any sacrifice. And in the Gospels, when we read about Jesus' ministry and his life here on earth, Jesus never seemed too interested with fans. He was okay with being around them, but he was really looking for followers, someone who would be completely committed to him. And for those who would choose to follow him in that way, they would become new in him, in Christ. And they would experience, through his death and resurrection on the cross, they would experience new life. And part of this series that was a a pretty big deal over two weeks that we talked about this, I said we were going to have a DTR moment with Jesus. Do you remember that? Do you remember what the DTR moment is? We have these in relationships all the time. DTR stands for define the relationship. And we really defined our relationship with Jesus. Am I a completely committed follower of Christ? And so when Paul outlines this text for those who have chosen to completely follow Christ, he says together, you need to have a DTL moment. You need to have a DTL moment, which is define the life. You've defined the relationship. You've chosen to be completely committed followers of Christ. And so here's what that looks like. You've chosen to follow. Here's what it looks like for you to live that out. And so as Paul opens in Romans 12, starting in verse 9, he says, this is how we define our following, how we define our life in Christ. So starting in verse 9, he says, let love be genuine. There are so many weeks we could do just on this passage as Paul unpacks this, but he starts by saying, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Cling to be united to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight and repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so Paul gives us a lot of things to define this new life, but one of the the first ones is a big one. And I think it's a big one that we misinterpret and we get wrong often, is that the new life is defined by genuine love. If you're taking notes, write that down. The new life is defined by genuine love. I mean, the word love is thrown around so much that it has become kind of a cheap statement, right? I mean, think about this. I say to my wife, hey, I love you. And then I stand in front of the grill and say, I love that steak, right? That's a term that we begin to use loosely and we say that we love everything. But the truth of it is, I have a very different love towards my wife than I do towards that steak, But it's a cheap word that we've kind of thrown around. We give ourselves freely and cheaply to these kinds of love that has nothing to do with God. And we keep giving ourselves to all these things. And God wants us, he wants you and I, to experience love, to communicate love, and to live in a way that would show genuine love. And that in our relationship with God, the biggest thing we can experience is his love for us and for others. But this isn't something that we always think about experiencing or communicating. Because we think more on the cultural love, the Hollywood hot pink love, right? The movies that men, you, you sacrifice a lot to watch those love movies with your wives, right? We think of the things that we love that are not really love, they're kind of a like, they're kind of a tolerate. And then things that we should love very deeply like one another, and we treat like the stuff that we say we love. And there's a contradiction to that. And so I think when Paul said earlier, as we talked in in the first week, that being conformed, looking like the world, behaving like the world, contradicts what Christ is about. We have to look different. Our love is to look different. Not cheap, not artificial, but genuine. Remember one of the quotes I used was, when the ship is in the ocean, everything's fine. But when the ocean gets in the ship, you're in trouble. When the ship is in the ocean, everything's fine. But when the ocean gets in the ship, you're in trouble. And so Jesus was adamant about the disciples loving one another, but for that to look different. He says in John 13, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. But by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, Jesus repeats himself over and over again. See, he gives them this commandment, and he says, I'm calling you to do this. But he doesn't force them into it. He models them for it. He models it to them. He models it for them, and he says, I invite you to love others like I'm doing. I don't want you to create how you're to love others. I don't want you to tolerate others. I want you to genuinely care for others because what Jesus says by the way he loves them, he says, I see the ugly parts of you and I'm staying. That is the kind of love that Jesus invites us into. As he says, I see the ugly parts of you and I'm staying. And here's the interesting thing. 
One of the most radical forms of Jesus' love is that he loves both the sinners that he hangs out with and the Pharisees that question him. See, this is the kind of love that I think sometimes we miss out on, is that Jesus loves both the sinners he sits in their homes with and the, and the Pharisees that question him. Because Jesus died for all. Jesus died with a genuine love because that's what defined the new life. Not a love that's based on culture, but on Christ. And so the new life is defined by genuine love. And then second, the new life is defined by persecution. In James' book to the church in Jerusalem, he says in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it as joy, as a good thing, when you meet trials, when you meet persecution of various kinds. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And notice that James says in verse 2, it's not if you experience various trials. He says when. That's an interesting perspective. Because for me, I always think if I experience trials. If I'm going to experience this, then I need to approach it in joy. But James says, listen, it's inevitable. That persecution is part of the new life in Christ. It's part of the new life. Persecution. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. You will have trials. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 12, says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were to happen to you. Now, let me, let me do my, my best, to the best of my timing ability, to just unpack the heart of the gospel for you. That here's the heart of the gospel, that everything that you need in your life, everything that you hope for, plan for, organize for, is in your desperate need for Jesus. The heart of the gospel is that you and I are not the answer. Jesus is the answer. And when we face persecution, our question often becomes, Jesus, what are you doing to me? God, why are you allowing this to happen But I believe that when we are in relationship with God, for God, our question becomes, how can I glorify you in this? Now, let me give you an example. John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends a messenger. We read this in Matthew 11, in in the first part of the chapter. John the Baptist sends a messenger to Jesus, and he says, are you the one who we've been expecting? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus sends them back, quoting Isaiah. And Jesus says, yes, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor are having good news preached to them. But Jesus leaves out the part and the captives will go free. That's kind of interesting. Jesus quotes Isaiah to John's messenger, says, go back and communicate this to them. But he leaves out the part that, hey, the... the, Captives will go free. Those in prison will go free. 
and basically communicates to John, you're going to stay in there, and then you're going to get beheaded by a stripper because she just doesn't like you. And that's what's going to happen to you. And so following Jesus may end badly for you and I. Following Jesus may be one of the hardest decisions you ever make, but it's the best decision you can ever make. But the new life doesn't come with a list of perks. It comes with a list of God's blessing, but it comes with persecution. Paul defines it. Don't don't think that these things came all of a sudden. Know that when you choose Christ, you're denying the world. There's something you're denying when you choose Jesus. But But persecution produces steadfastness. And the definition of steadfastness is to be firm and unwavering, to be unshakable. And so when you choose to be full of joy, to understand that the new life in Christ is defined by persecution, you are saying, in Christ, I will be unshakable. So let me ask you this, church. What is your response in trials? What is your response in persecution? Because remember, when when we're in relationship with God for what we can get, our question is, why are you letting this happen to me? But when we are in relationship with God for God, our question in persecution is, how can I glorify you through this? Remember the song, Blessed Be Your Name, the, the bridge where it says, you give and you take away, but my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Lord, blessed be your name. And you know why? You know why Jesus calls us to that? Because he cares more about our restoration than our perfection. If you are trying to be perfect for Jesus, if you are trying to get your life altogether and perfect, you're in the wrong church. And one I know because I'm here, and one I know because Jesus is the answer and not me. Jesus cares more about your restoration than he does about your perfection. And he calls you into the persecution. I mean, when we read the the book of Acts alone, you see that what's the thing that grows the church other than than Peter's preaching and a megachurch births from there? It's the persecution. It's the persecution. It, It spreads the church and they continue on, unwavering, they're unshakable in it. And they continue to grow in that persecution. Because Jesus cares more about our restoration than our perfection. And then finally, we see that the new life is defined by reconciliation. The new life is defined by reconciliation. Paul tells us that we are to live in peace with all as much as possible, as much as you can. You're not always going to be able to, but as much as possible, and then leave the rest to God. Leave the rest to God. And see, there's two key scriptures that are outlined. One is from Jesus, and then one is from Paul about reconciliation. And it's the common verse we use when we consider reconciliation and seeking out to reconcile with someone is Matthew 18. In verse 15 and 16, Jesus says this. And remember this, as you think of maybe there's someone that you're going, I need to reconcile with. There's someone I need to go and talk through some things with. 
Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. But here's the key piece that I think we really need to hold on to is between you and them alone. You and them alone. If they don't know, if you have not approached it, that doesn't belong in any other conversation. Now, there is, there is wisdom in counsel, but that's what the Holy Spirit's for. There is, a, there is a very fine line between seeking counsel and creating gossip. And it's dangerous, and it kills churches quicker than anything. So between you and them alone. And then Jesus continues and says, and if, and if they listen, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You have won them over. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you as what we would call a mediator, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And what does Jesus say? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So what does that tell you about our reconciliation? That it's with the desire that God would be in it. So let me give you just a couple pointers when it comes to reconciliation. One, email doesn't work. I just want it really, I mean, I've gotten nasty emails before. I have had conversations where people desire reconciliation. If email, texting, Facebook, those are means to connect. That is not a means of reconciliation. I just want to tell you that right now because it's easy for you and I to hide behind a computer. It's not easy to hide behind anything when we're sitting across from someone. Email does not work. Email doesn't work. And second, Facebook doesn't work. We're called to a ministry of reconciliation, and we need to go to one another face-to-face. If we have an issue with a brother, we need to go with them face-to-face. Now, some of us have a hard time with conflict. I completely understand that. So then share that with that person and say, I need to bring someone with me. I'm, I'm having a hard time. But It's good for us to write these things out. It's good for us to process these things. But to air that in a passive form of technology is not biblical. It is not healthy. And I would encourage you not to go that route. To meet face to face. To fight not over the content, but fight for the relationship. Here's why. Because Christ calls us into fighting for the relationship because he stepped in and fought for ours with God. And he did that face to face. Jesus, who did not have to come, who could let us die, chose and said, I'm going to go and be face to face with these people who don't deserve your love. They don't deserve genuine love. They should deserve the persecution that doesn't produce growth in a church, but they deserve to hang on their own cross, but I'm going to go face to face and reconcile this relationship. And so what Jesus outlined is exactly what he modeled. And so for you, if you have a conflict in mind, if you have something in Matthew 18, I want to share with you four questions I ask myself. When I think of Matthew 18 and when I have a conflict, if you're a note taker, write these down. These are, these are some good questions that I began to ask myself. One, is it sin? Is it sin? Because I think there are times where we go to address conflict that needs to be addressed. But sometimes we call something sin that isn't sin. We, we ignore the big ones and we create little ones. So is it sin? 
Question two I ask myself is, is it against God? I think we need to begin with that. Before it's against me, is it against God? And two, is, is the offense, is the fault, or is the sin against me? Is it against me? After I've fully asked, is it against God, then is it against me? And then fourth, and most important, which we probably more should start with, is, is it my own sin? Is it my own sin that needs to be dealt with? Is it my own that's causing that offense? Is it my own sin? And remember, church, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. Through the blood and the redeeming love of Jesus, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you have not yet underlined that word and circled it and highlighted it and put a sticky note next to it in your, in your Bible, do so. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, not just you and I, not just a couple, but anyone, all, anyone who is in Christ, if he is, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, the new life. In verse 18, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so because Jesus chose genuine love to be persecuted, for you and I to experience new life, he reconciled our sin. He reconciled our penalty so that we could be in relationship with God. And so as, as believers here this morning, as a church, what we are defined by is Jesus. More than any other definition, what we are defined by this morning, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation and you are defined by Jesus. Not by what you've done, but by Jesus. That is your definition. And so this morning, as we come to a close in our series of The New Life, my prayer is that we would no longer define our lives by our outward living, but by how we model Christ and love others like Christ. Let's pray.